So I want to share with you this idea of how the gospel is unbound. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the words from Scripture that remind us that soon and very soon we will be with you. We will be present with you face to face. But until then, we have a job to do. So give us that holy boldness that we need to proclaim your word and your message of love and guide us as a united body to do it together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there I was in Winston, Oregon. I was going for a walk one morning. And in fact, for a couple of days prior to that walk, you know that still small voice that kind of echoes every once in a while in your mind, especially when there's something you're supposed to do. Well, there I was. I was probably about maybe three-fourths of a mile from the Winston Seventh-day Adventist Church, and the thought kept coming to me, yeah, you've walked over to the river, you've walked here and there, you were handing out literature at one of the restaurants and some other places. Walk down to the church tomorrow morning. Well, I, I, I basically ignored it one morning, and then the next morning came, and it came again. And so I walked down towards the Winston Seventh-day Adventist Church. Along the way, I met a member of that church walking towards me, and I said, said to the Lord in my mind, is this who I'm supposed to meet? And we shook hands, we talked briefly, he went on his walk, I went on, continued on mine. It wasn't really what I had thought, I thought maybe that was the one. And I kept walking, and as you walk towards the Winston Church, it goes downhill, and you get to a, basically a T in the road, and the church is just right over there. And as I got closer to that T in the road, the thought came to me, you're supposed to meet somebody. And I'm like, okay, Lord, who am I supposed to meet? I'm like almost right at the church. Maybe it's on the way back I'm supposed to meet the person. And the thought came back, wait and see. So I get down to where I can see the church, and it's probably 7 o'clock in the morning, and there's cars in the parking lot. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize there'd be cars in the parking lot 7 o'clock in the morning. So I walk over, and the doors are open. I thought maybe they were in there cleaning the church for the memorial service reception that we were going to have for my grandfather. But the doors were wide open, and I said, oh, that's, that's even more interesting. Seven o'clock in the morning, the doors open. And then I heard voices in the church coming from two directions, the sanctuary to my right, because when you come into double doors, there's a sanctuary here, hallway down there. I heard voices in the sanctuary, barely, and I heard voices down the hall. And I said, all right, Lord, I'm going to go in the sanctuary. So I go in the sanctuary, and they're kneeling down in prayer. And they're praying, you guessed it, for me. They had our names up on the board. Some of them were praying for the, for the Hagee family. And here they were encouraging me. And this is not the first time they've ever done this. This, this is years of praying for me. Years of praying for me when my grandfather would bring the request to the church. And here they were again in my valley. I really didn't feel a valley at the time. I didn't really feel that discouraged, but I... I, it hit me hard like, Murray, you were supposed to be there to hear them encourage you. And I, I didn't have time to really pray with them very much, but a, a dear older lady, she came over and said, would you like me to pray with you? And I said, yeah, would be fine. So she prayed with me. She thought I was from the community. She didn't know who I was. Some of the other ones did. And after she was done, she's like, well, what brought you here this morning? I said, well, the Lord told me to come down here this morning. So thank you for praying with me. And I, and I tried to slip out before anybody would notice me, head out or notice me. We shook hands. I noticed my name up on the board again. And he's like, do you need anything? I said, no, the Lord just told me to come down here this morning. And I'm walking back up the road, up the hill, away from the church, thinking, okay, Lord, is there somebody else I'm supposed to meet? And a car pulls up beside me. It reminded me of yesteryear, how I would walk those streets and church member after church member would pull over and say, can I give you a ride? Or, 
I'd say, no, I need to go, I need to find somebody the Lord wants me to find. And they pulled up beside me, can I give you a ride? I said, no, I just, uh, I'm just going for a walk as the Lord told me to. And then they said, uh, you're that pastor from California, aren't you? I said, yeah, I am. And then we, he talked briefly, and I said, just keep doing what you're doing. The Lord is working through you. And I don't know if that's why, who I was supposed to meet. I don't even know. I just know that I was being ministered to, and then I was encouraging them. And what was encouraging was that somebody in their church had died in the faith. And yet, this church continued to echo that same faith after, long after his death. In fact, this very morning, like I've mentioned, they're having a concert there. They're inviting people to that. They're having different, and they meet two or three times a week for prayer, just to pray for people in the community. And that's a church, an example of a church, and I believe we're also an example of a church, firmly planted in a faith that encourages and shares Jesus. And that's what we find is still happening. There's a picture of the church. That's the view you would have if you came towards it. But years, years, and years before, we find somebody being encouraged by a church that he had planted. Somebody being encouraged by a group of people. And who were they? Well, if we look and see what's happened in the first century church, we find the blood of the prophets, especially you find the last prophet to Israel, Stephen, we find his seed for the gospel. He dies, and as he's being stoned, who's looking on? Saul is looking on. And as Saul looks on, he begins, as you find in some descriptions in Desire of Ages and others, he begins to have these seeds planted in his heart. Though he, he shakes them off, goes after the friends of Jesus in Acts chapter 8, he begins to persecute and go after Christians in different places and get them locked up, which eventually would be a death sentence for some of them. But on the way, we find in Acts chapter 9 to Damascus, we find him being converted, changed by Jesus Christ. The one whom he persecuted was not the church. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus is so intertwined with his church, he sees it as his bride, that when Saul was going after the church, it was literally a fight against Jesus. So he's converted by Jesus himself, and the story of Jesus dying was shared by Saul, who is known now as Paul, even though many people are trying to stop him from sharing the gospel. So now the very ones whom he persecuted, he is now encouraging them, and he is now raising up churches all over the place as God leads him on his first and second missionary journeys from Acts chapter 13 through 20. Some try to stop him at Jerusalem, but he pulls that card and says, I appeal to Caesar, and that takes him on a journey, a journey that will convert centurions, and we find Roman soldiers, and we find people in a palace being converted. We find, even though it appears that they're stopping the gospel, that it continues to move forward. And he makes his journey to Rome, and you probably have read some of that. And what's interesting is he makes his journey to Rome is that he is welcomed along the way. He is welcomed and encouraged by some of the ones who he has reached out to. And our young people, if you have a blank there on your sheet, Acts chapter 28 is the answer to that. The rest of us will look it up. Acts chapter 28. We find his arrival at Rome. He's been sailing for some time. You can read all about that in verses 11, 12, and 13. Eventually the wind blows the right way, and they come to a port, 
It says, we found brethren, in verse 14, and were invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. And so we find along the way in this journey, in this journey when he should be discouraged, in this journey when he should be the one that we find being discouraged, he's encouraged by these brothers and sisters that they find along the way. And they go towards Rome in Acts chapter 28, verse 14. And in verse 15, And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Apiforum and the three inns, or the three taverns, as some versions say. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Imagine there you are in chains, there you are being escorted by soldiers, and we know from the next few verses that they make some exceptions for Paul. And as you are going along the way, who seems to come along? People that you've known, people that you've reached for Jesus, and now they're there encouraging you along the way. And what's interesting is you, as you look at this text carefully, the distance that you find these brethren are following him along in the Greek language. They're not just saying, hi, Paul. They're actually going with him on this part of this journey, encouraging him along the way. And so he receives a kingly welcome because of the many who serve the king in that area, Jesus Christ. So look at the text a little more carefully. They find brethren, and they came to meet us. They heard that Paul was in the area, and they're traveling 40 miles. What are they doing along the way? They meet somebody. Where are you going? Where, where, where are you headed? If say they stop somewhere. We're going to meet Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about him. Can you imagine 40 miles of traveling on foot, most of them, or in primitive methods of transportation, traveling that 40 miles to see Paul. No wonder Paul takes courage. And imagine the procession as they're going along the way. Imagine the centurion and the soldiers who are keeping Paul. Imagine the influence that that witness of encouragement from the church had on those around Paul. We talk, talk, typically we focus on Paul, but imagine the ones who were influenced just by this very witness. We have pictures of Paul that are artist renditions of him being in chains and a Roman soldier standing there. And imagine being the Roman soldier, and as you see this person that should be discouraged, they've appealed to Caesar, more than likely they're going to face some form of sentence or some form of discouragement along the other side, and yet you see Christians coming every which way as you journey with this individual towards Rome. You've already seen amazing events along the shipwreck and all of that. You've heard stories of of Paul being bitten by a snake and not dying. You've heard stories of him who should be dead, yet he is alive and he is right in front of you there. Instead of being treated like a criminal, you find evidence in the text that they make provisions for him. Something happened as a result of those encouraging Christians along the way. So imagine being the soldier looking on and you would see a focused man. What's he focused on? In the last chapter of Philippians 1, excuse me, Philippians chapter 1, we looked at last time, we, we saw he's focused on the day of Jesus Christ. That's why he's making these journeys. Yes, he made some mistakes along the way, but he's still focused on the day of Jesus Christ. He still sees people around him as individuals who need to know his friend Jesus. And what's the result? They see this focused man, and the result is, it appears with these concessions and things that are made because of the powerful witness of Paul that the gospel, instead of being in chains, is liberated. It's unbound. Philippians chapter 1 says in verse 12, But I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened to me have fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. 
And I was, I was compelled to look up those words, especially fallen out. What is that? Like you shook something out of your clothes or something? Well, it's actually this idea of, of cutting before, preparing or clearing away. And it was used in military terminology back in Paul's day. It's like, for instance, you would send in the Roman infantry before you would have the cavalry come in and basically vanquish an enemy. You would send people in and cut away at the enemies in front of you preparing the way for the final victory. So he sees himself like a forerunner, like someone who's just preparing the way, and he's got all these people that he's going to influence who are going to come up behind him, and if he dies, they're going to go ahead and finish the work. And so he's, another word of translating it is pioneer. Someone, as you read in different parts of our history of the United States, who takes a courageous journey to prepare the way for others to take that journey. Oregon Trail stories, you find all kinds of stories like that, right? This is what Paul sees himself as. Not even anything special. He's just saying it's all worked out that the way has been prepared for you so that the gospel will be furthered. He knows the gospel doesn't hinge on one man except for Jesus Christ. So how does that hardship prepare the way? Well, Look at this picture of Roman soldiers, just to give you kind of an idea of what, how Roman infantry looked like. If you find them going up against cavalry, say that the engaging army has a whole bunch of horses, horsemen and all of that, they'll get into this formation here. It's pretty discouraging for horses at that point, if you look at that carefully. What do you have? You've got, these, you've got this wall here, and these guys are behind them, so they have enough, and they would go two or three deep, not just one row. They would have rows of this, and they would make a wall so if the cavalry came towards this infantry who was trying to prepare the way for their cavalry, then they would run into those implements of war, those shields. And so these guys up here are jabbing at the horsemen. Those guys are shoving up at the horses and they would eventually obliterate the cavalry that was coming at them in order for the ones behind them, the archers and the cavalry, to finish off the rest of the army. This is a Roman figuration, configuration here. So imagine you're one of these individuals here. Your job is to go in and clear the way. Your job is to divide the enemy, not yourself, the enemy. And then when you get into close quarters with the enemy, you would take out your, your gladiator sword, if you will. and you, It's a gladius. And you would begin to shove up into the enemy at close quarters as well. Literally cutting away and hopefully dividing the enemy's army so that then your troops that come behind you can finish them off. You can read more about this in different sources if you want. So as I look at the story of Jesus, and we know Jesus is ultimately the one who came to cut away, to cut a covenant, to prepare the way for us. Becoming human being, he intervened for us. I mean, even an army of one here, even Jesus himself, we find he could obliterate the whole enemy himself. Yet he has angels, he has prophets, he has visions, he has all kinds of ways to influence others. And the ones who are influenced by Jesus then influence others. So imagine you're one of the 12 disciples or you're 150 in the book of Acts at the beginning of it. What ends up happening? They find their army in the field. By engaging the enemy, converting the enemy, if you will, to their side. You're not going to convert Satan, but as far as the ones that you're reaching to Jesus... And now all of a sudden, that's a pretty bad situation for Satan's camp, isn't it? 
the people influenced by Jesus influence other people who basically are the army now. So is the army in here today or is it out there? We're the ones being influenced by Jesus in our devotions, in our times with each other, in our encouraging each other. But really, the army's out there. 20,000 from Anderson over to the west part of Happy Valley area. I'd say that's a lot more than what we have in here, right? So anyway, you look at it, the army's out there. Those are the ones we're trying to influence for Jesus Christ. And then with that army, the gospel becomes even more unstoppable. And so it goes this way, doesn't it? If you go back, there we are. Jesus is really the one who cut the way, who prepared the way. We go in and we divide the enemy as his church and begin to not kill off the ones who are deceived, but to influence them to turn with us. And that, if you look at army strategium, is one of the hardest battles to win, is when your own soldiers turn on you. So we want people to turn on Satan, don't we? We want them to go and join us then, and now all of a sudden we turn around and we prepare people for Jesus' coming. And the story of Jesus keeps moving forward, unbound. As we're influenced by Jesus, we influence others, and then we turn together on the enemy, and we defeat the enemy, not from our own strength, from the strength of Jesus Christ. But there's something that Paul mentions. He mentions fear. He mentions that some of you are not afraid because of what I'm going through. You actually took courage because of my bonds. Because what fear does is it gets in the way of us influencing others. We could have that time with Jesus. We could be influenced by him. He can be even intervening in our lives. But then if we don't reach others because of fear... Well, you know, they, they won't even go to that website anyway, right? Or, you know, they won't even, right? So they, we, we get afraid of what others will think if we now tell them about Christ. Or we think in Paul's day, for instance, well, I guess I could go to jail too if I tell someone about Jesus. I guess I better not be telling people about Jesus. You know, the fear element could totally hinder the multiplication that God has in store for his people. So we have to eliminate that fear. And the only way I find to eliminate that fear is to keep focusing on Christ and then asking that Spirit to guide you, to guide you through that. Philippians 1.13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and all other places. So he's telling them, you've encouraged me and all of that, and look, my bonds, you can see my chains, but, but really it's bringing me closer to Jesus, my bonds in Christ. What I'm going through is actually showing the whole palace and in other places. Imagine having the opportunity to reach the White House or to reach some general somewhere if you were taken captive for the sake of Jesus Christ. This is what's going on in Paul's experience here. He's reaching the very people that he would not have had access to. And many of the brethren in the Lord, wax confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So what happens? If we allow fear to, to trump the love of Christ, the bonds of Christ, then, then basically people aren't being influenced. But if we allow the bonds of Christ, the things we go through for Jesus, to encourage us, then boldness comes and fear is removed. So the palace and beyond heard of Paul's witness. They influenced the palace, and the gospel begins to spread, even though the devil tried to hinder it. That is God's plan, isn't it? Look back in your own life. Just look back in your immediate family, for instance. 
what is the likelihood? If you go back into your family and you kind of rewind the tape all the way to the time of Jesus and start plugging in the puzzle pieces, what's the likelihood of you sitting here today if it wasn't for God planning it out? It's a miracle for every one of us. There, there's no other explanation as to why we're even sitting here today. The, Luke chapter 21 talks about the dispensation of the Gentiles. We're living in a time when God has given the nations mercy and time to turn and to become part of his people to influence others for his return. So it's only God's plan that we're experiencing right now. The devil could have tried to hinder it and caused all kinds of monkey wrenches in it, but it still goes according to God's plan. So the believers see Paul's trust in Jesus and how he still influences others, and so they're like, if Paul can do it and he's locked up, can't be doing much there, right? By pen and by some voice every once in a while, then what can I do? I'm free. Let me go and influence others for Jesus. So it encourages the believers. And there are other hindrances as well. We find in Philippians 1 that some indeed preached Christ out of envy, and strife. They were willing to even divide the flock. They developed a message to divide the flock and gather a following amount behind themselves rather than them all going marching together. Read Luke 21. I was reading it this morning and it talked about this idea in Luke chapter 21 of not necessarily focusing on the one who says come here and follow me and and I, or I'm in this place or that place, the false Christ and false prophets. We're to focus and be watching and praying and focusing on Christ, not on each other or some other human being. So we want to follow Christ. In Philippians 1.16, the one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. It gets even worse. It's not just that they wanted to have their little following, like Paul has a bigger following. They want to have a little one. It's they were even willing to do it to make Paul feel discouraged. Now, that's, if that's not an agent of Satan, I don't know what is. Right there in the church. But the other of love. So Paul contrasts those. He says, well, yeah, they're, they're getting envious of Paul's influence, envious of what's going on because people knowing Jesus. But Paul doesn't focus on that. He says, that's happening. The devil's trying to hinder things, but I know that there are others preaching out of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. I'm here because of Jesus and that word for love and good, is goodwill. They love Jesus. They see Paul's love for Jesus. And so you have these two groups in that church in Philippi. Those who are trying to undercut Paul's influence by dragging others over to them and those who keep preaching Jesus as they see Paul in jail. So envy, as you look at that model again, you find Jesus influence us. What happens if we get into this envy thing? Well, you would think this would happen, right? That it would somehow hinder reaching the ones around you. But Paul says it really doesn't work out that way. People eventually will see through envy and will see that those people are not doing it for the right motives and it will actually end up furthering the gospel. It'll, it's like it will, finally when it dawns on you that you've been deceived or, or figure out that the person really wasn't doing it for the right reasons and they're fake, well, what happens? Well, even if you said bad things about Paul before, you might make things right and say, you know what, Paul was right and start defending the guy and start seeing how he was doing it out of love for you. And so if they're divided, you would, you would think eventually an army would retreat, but that's not always the case. Envy can be overcome a lot easier than fear. Fear is something that's been cultivated by the devil. It's his kingdom. We have to get rid of that, and we also have to get rid of envy, but 
I would much rather have the ones who are envious on my side, on your side. So we find, we find that if we are too envious and too fearful, eventually what's going to happen to the church? It'll be on the retreat. So we want to be the ones who are preaching Christ out of love, and we want to be the ones who are not afraid to do it, but that only comes through the Holy Spirit guiding us. We need the Holy Spirit to guide each one of us. Because if we retreat, what's the enemy going to do? They send the cavalry in, and they cut you down from behind. That's what they do. This is a Visigoth uh, picture of some of the armies that Rome, the Romans faced, and eventually when the Roman Empire began to fall apart, they were on the retreat. And guess what happened to the Roman Empire? They weren't standing there against the cavalry bravely. They were running away, and the cavalry was now coming behind with their spears and jabbing them in the back, cutting them down left and right. The retreat is when you suffer your most casualties in those ancient battles because you've got nothing to really guard you. Sometimes there would be a rear guard sitting there trying to hold off the enemy long enough for the retreat to happen, but they usually, the rear guard perishes doing that. So we as a church, spiritually speaking, and Paul's example is clear, we need to be on the forward march, not on the retreat. Once we allow envy and fear to come in, then we begin to retreat, and then the enemy just totally decimates the church. I still remember, you know, there was a conversation some time ago where somebody was telling me about somebody else in the church, and I said, I keep having to say this, and I have to keep reminding myself too, have you talked to them yet? Because once you allow insinuation to come in, eventually fear and revenge takes over and you want to get after that person because you're, you're reading into the situation. I said, well, have you really talked to that person yet? No, I haven't. I'm just telling you about it. I said, my pastoral counsel to you is to go talk to the person. Try to work it out. We don't want to have any envy or strife or anything amongst us. It, was in a, it wasn't in this church. It was a different place. Because once the church gets into that mode, the devil then takes the plan of Jesus, which is to take the soldiers of the enemy and turn them on Satan. He then takes, Satan takes that plan and does it in the church. You have a divided church, and it's very terrible to get out of that situation. So we don't want that to happen. We want to be like in Paul's situation, where the gospel was going forward. The gospel was unbound because of Jesus, because he's alive, because he's living. He's the one we're focusing on. He's the one we're following. And therefore we begin to cut away at the enemy himself. Not the people around us, but Satan himself. This is a beautiful quotation. It says, There is a lesson for us in this experience of Paul's, for it reveals God's way of working. The Lord can bring victory out of that which may seem to us discomfiture and defeat. We are in danger of forgetting God, of looking at the things which are seen. And I will be frank with you over and over again, that's what your media is designed to do. Most of the media that we have today is designed to instill fear into the populace. It's a propaganda method as old as way before Hitler's time. It, you can even read Hitler's book if you want. I'm not telling you you should, but if you ever got into it, read the chapter on propaganda. You'll see a page right out of our newspapers and our media. That's exactly what people are wanting us to focus on is fear, fear, fear. That's why they've got to put a little friendly dose of a happy story every once in a while to, to make you feel good. It's because they've basically poisoned you, and now to accept that poison, you have to somehow have something good to look at. So we don't want to be forgetting God and just look at things that are seen and the fear that's all around us. Instead, we need to behold by the eye of faith the things which are unseen. 
So when Paul was there, was he looking at the Roman soldier's armor glittering there as the sun shone on it and the sword? Was he like, oh man, that guy's a strong guy, you know? Paul actually felt confident in the Lord that he could reach that Roman guard. That that battle-hardened Roman guard could become the satyrian at the cross who says, surely this was the Son of God. That that battle-hardened Roman guard could be the one who would eventually, like we have some reports of, die on ice naked for the faith of Jesus. We find that's what they would do to some of the Roman, guard, Roman soldiers who converted. They would literally make them freeze to death. So this could be the one, instead of Paul saying, I can never reach this guy, Paul says, I can reach this guy. Jesus has me here in this place at this time to reach the unreachable, seemingly. Reach somebody who had been battle-hardened. Reach somebody who had killed many people. Reach somebody who it seems like, as far as society is concerned, is a lost cause. That's how Paul saw his imprisonment. So he had to have his eyes on the unseen. He had to focus on Jesus because when misfortune or calamity comes, we're ready to charge God with neglect or cruelty, aren't we? Sometimes that happens. Oh God, why am I going through this? If he sees fit to cut off our usefulness in some line, we mourn, not stopping to think, just pause to think, that thus God may be working for our good. We need to learn that chastisement is a part of his great plan. I still remember thinking, why did I ever go away from Oregon? You know, that's my home state, my hometown, my grandpa, all my family's there. Surely I could have, you know, done a work there. But, you know, my brother and I both had conversations with our grandfather, and he said, when we felt like coming home, basically you stay where you're at. You stay where you're at. God has you there for a reason. You may feel certain feelings of loneliness and separation, and like, why am I so far away from home and family? You may feel different discouragements in your life, but God says, I have you there for a reason. There's a reason why you're going through that discouragement. There's a reason why you feel those feelings that you do. It's working out for your good. We need to learn that chastisement is part of his great plan that under the rod of affliction, the Christian may sometimes do more for the master than when engaged in active service. When Satan tries to beat us down, God is actually providing a way for us to keep on serving. That's the example we find in Paul's attitude. And that's why the palace and the guards and the people around him were influenced. Even the Jews started coming and asking for audiences from Paul. The gospel was unbound because of that knowledge that Paul had that Jesus was with him. So Paul says, what then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in true, whether they're doing it for the wrong reasons or not, Christ is preached. And I rejoice. I'm happy. Imagine someone being happy and they're suffering for Jesus. Imagine them being happy and they are separated from the ones that they love. Imagine them being happy because they see others sharing Christ with those around them. I know there could be some here who feel bound spiritually. My answer is, go to the same God of Paul. Go to Jesus. He will forgive you of your sins. He will cleanse you of those sins. And He'll send you to share to those around you. And those of us who have accepted that forgiveness, take courage from His example. He's, his, his example is there for us to rejoice in as well. So the Gospel is unbound because Christ is preached. The story kept advancing even after Paul died, because we're sitting here today, we're standing here today, it's evidence that the gospel continued moving forward. The story of Jesus is still being told. So Paul, I can imagine, and the earth made new, rejoicing even more to see all the people who read. He's like, you read my book about Jesus? Yes, we read it, Paul. We read it and we were encouraged to keep 
sharing Jesus with those around us boldly. So today, the same plan of God is being fulfilled in each one of our lives. Paul reached many. We see maps of this. You find all kinds of maps. Some of you may have them in the backs of your Bible. Look at all the people that one man reached from town to town. We're not talking air, air travel here. We're talking slower travel, ship and by land. And yet, in his lifetime, he could say, and like others around him, basically the world was turned upside down for Jesus. What about us then? Each one of us. There's only one of us sitting here today. Uh, we wouldn't be able to afford the lights and all. We'd be sitting at home, right? So if there was only one of us believing in Jesus Christ and realizing his love for us, God could go ahead and take us and, and use us to finish the work in this whole area. But there are so many more than just one of us. So the gospel is unbound. And I have story after story in my life. And I did what I, told, I just mentioned to you. I, I looked back just a few stories back in my life. I was at the funeral of my grandfather and I was giving the closing prayer. And after the closing prayer, people came up to me and I did the Lord's Prayer for the closing prayer. My grandfather always ended his Bible readings with the Lord's Prayer. And some of our family could say it, some of them couldn't. They were just, just gripped by it. But a member from, of our family from the Hagee side from Walla Walla came up to me and I said, is it true that some people on your side of the family were influenced by Jesus and they began handing out literature to train people up there, up there in Washington? I had heard that story. And he said, yeah, it's true. And do you know what the book was that did it? The Great Controversy. Somebody gave their family one of the early, basically the earliest edition of The Great Controversy and that family read it and that family began to say, we're going to share this book and all kinds of other books with people all around us. And as you go down through time, that part of that family moved off over to Gladstone. That's where my grandfather comes into the picture. And as I'm thinking of all these wonderful events, my brother and I, after we were out handing out some literature a little bit before the funeral, a day or so before the funeral, we were sitting waiting for a store to open. My brother didn't have a dark suit like this one. And he's like, I've got I to get something to match yours or you know, look more funeral-like. <laughs> so we were waiting outside of a store, and I said to him, doesn't it seem planned, planned somehow, that God arranged the kind of literature that you and I would receive years ago? I said, because I remember Grandpa sent me three hours to live in the marked Bible. Did he send you that too? Yeah, he sent me that too. I said, so it was planned, wasn't it? You know, whether Grandpa did it on purpose or not, it was planned. And he's like, yeah, Grandpa told me about that. See, back at that, uh, that church, before they even had this part built onto it, there was a cement slab here, and they always wished that they could build a, a sanctuary there. But they met over here in this part of the church, and, and there was a hallway going past here, and in the hallway was this, this old rickety, almost like uh, that bandstand over there, that, that black-colored, it was a literature rack, and you could wheel the thing around. And I still remember when I became a Christian, I went to church, it squeaked, you know, it was a squeaky thing. So I can imagine my grandfather squeaking this thing around, looking at the literature, saying, how can I reach two teenagers who are lost causes? That, the, that the, basically the people in this community say they're lost. They're, and that's not even Christians saying. And he's going around and thumbing through this stuff, looking at it, taking pieces off. And he tells my brother that he came across a book, Three Hours to Live. Talks about a guy on death row. Lost cause, right? He picks it up and the Lord says, give that one to them. Then he finds the other one called the Marked Bible. And the Lord's like, give that one to them. So what was the first one? Salvation in Jesus. And the second one was about some beautiful truths of a young man's mother who she marked a Bible for him and he discovered 
all those beautiful truths of the Bible, including the Sabbath. So he gives those to us. Who planned all of that? My grandfather? Well, he had a part to play, didn't he? But who impressed him? This is what that 17-year-old's going to need. This is what that 17-year-old's going to need. That was God's plan. That was God who influenced him. And the same thing happened in Paul's day. It was God who influenced him to go through those experiences and to share Jesus. And so what we have today is this. People around us, watching us, seeing our focus on Jesus, how we want to prepare for the day of Jesus, yes, but we want them to be with us. You can fill in the picture of your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, the people that you care about. God has already has a plan for them because he has you in their life. It's a matter of whether we're going to be a part of that plan or not. The gospel will be unbound one way or the other. Jesus will come. The world will be lightened with his glory. The message will go to the world. But I have a feeling that deep down, true fulfillment will come looking back and saying, I was somehow a part of God. Give me some small part in helping someone know Jesus. And so I believe the gospel is unbound here as well. There's, there are many of us. In fact, there are more of us here than at that Winston church. If they're still doing it, surely we can do it. Surely the gospel can be unbound here through each one of our lives. And I know there's that story of Elijah where he sees that cloud the size of a man's hand. Remember him in the Old Testament? Soon we're going to see that cloud the size of a man's hand. We're going to say, look, our God, here he comes. And yes, time will be no more as far as we know it. Time will be up. We find time is running out. So we should have an urgency to share like we have never shared before. And soon he will come. Don't know if it'll look exactly like that, but just imagine the rainbows, the beauty, the angels, all of them, and then them sharing with you. You know what? There were these hindrances in your life, but God sent me, an angel, say an angel comes along and says, sent me to do this or that for you. Or I, I, I tapped somebody on the shoulder and they came and talked to you. Or I tapped you on the shoulder and you somehow flipped through that radio station. Imagine all the stories of how the gospel story made itself planted in your life and mine. That is going to be a glorious day. That is going to be what we are looking forward to. That's why we sang that Faith of Our Fathers song. But in the meantime, let us sing, Give Me Jesus. We all need Jesus to then share with others around us. And that's what our closing song is about. It'll be up on the screen. And as you sing it, think about ways that you can share with others. Could be those Shadow Empire invitations. There's a whole stack of glow tracks out there that I put a display out there. There's six, I've got 600 of them. Look through those and share those with others. And if that doesn't do you well, if you've got some people who are high tech, give them one of those business cards out there. It has websites for them to go to and know Jesus. There's so many ways we can share. Let's take Jesus into our lives and then give him to the world around us. Please stand.
about the break of day, just about the break of day, give me My God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.